0: podcast with Ren Melberg. My name's Harold Nickel. This week on the podcast, we will be discussing some hardcore agile issues and asking Ren some hardcore agile questions. Specifically, we will be talking about testing with agile. And Ren, we get back this week into the nitty-gritty of agile project management with testing. So, First, give us an overview of testing in the Agile framework. What distinguishes it from other types of quality tests?
1: Well, in in all truth and honesty, in Agile, we do all the same testing that we do in Waterfall or traditional project management. So the the what is the same. Um, What's different is the how, so how we do it. So when we think about really extensive uh, testing, we start with unit testing and component testing within a particular application. That's usually done by the developers. Then it goes over to QA, um, either QA or the developers, into integration testing. If it's automated integration, then, of course, that's done by the developers.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: If it's not automated, then it's usually done by – if it's manual, then it's usually done by a QA person. Um then we go into um, functional testing. Um, then we usually have uh UAT and end to end regression testing is in there as well. Um, then we go into the non functional testing, so things like performance testing and um, once and then we have pre production validation, which is kind of like the last, okay, let's make sure everything is working and meeting our standards, Mm -hmm. and we know how to deploy everything and promote the code properly, et cetera. And then we still have to do disaster recovery testing.
0: Good night. That's a lot of different kind of testing. It's
1: it's a lot of testing (laughs) (laughs) that goes on. Um, I don't think people who use um, software-enabled things understand how much testing goes into creating all of these. Um, And that's not the exhaustive list by the way. I just gave you some of the most common ones. There are additional things that we may do, like there's smoke testing and things like that. Um, So there's actually a lot more than than even that list. And so the the list is the same. You do the same thing where you look at what you need to do and what do we need to test. they always use the formula, we test for 80% of, you know, what could happen, we don't mm-hmm. do the edge cases. The truth is, we probably test more to 90-95%. Wow. Uh, especially in, um, regulated industries or anything that has a direct customer feedback. So anything that has a UI, anything that has to do with money, anything that has to do with healthcare, anything that has to do with security or data or personal information. So the other thing we emphasize in addition to automated testing with Agile is also iterative testing. So if we think about end-to-end, we don't test A to E all in in one fell swoop. What we do is we develop user story A, which will take us to A to B. Then we deliver user story B, and we test A to B. A should be automated at this point. So it's an automated test, then we test B, which is manual. Then we develop user story C. A and B are now automated. So when we're ready to test user story C, we want to automate the test for A and B and we manually test C, so on and so forth until we're all the way down to E. And the automated tests for A, B, C, and D are automated. We do the manual test for C, and we create the automated test for E. Now we have um, done all the end-to-end testing for A through E, and we have automated tests for A through E. So the very last thing we do is run the automated test for A through E. And that's how we do, uh, in, in the simplest way, we talk about Agile testing and iteratively and how each user story builds on the test um, before it and the user story before it.
0: My goodness, that's a lot of really rigorous testing. And we'll talk <laughs> more about uh, some of those components as we go through the show today, mm-hmm. but most of what you've said regarding Agile over the months was about the democratic or the team approach to Agile. How is a team approach used for testing?
1: Well, the thing is the entire team is working on what's going to be tested from the very beginning. So when we think of the two most important pieces of a user story, there's the description, which tells you what has to be done and why it needs to be done. And then we have the acceptance criteria. I can't tell you how many really mature agile organizations I've worked with that that's all they have in their user stories. They don't have, um, preconditions and assumptions and, you know, business rules and all this other stuff. They just have description and acceptance criteria. Because if you're really good at writing the acceptance criteria, it already covers all those other areas. And it tells you everything you need to know about the what for that user story. And the whole team, remember, writes acceptance criteria. Everybody participates in that activity. And when they start working on a user story, while the developers are designing it, the testers are sitting there with them and are writing their test cases. At the same time, and so when the developers are starting to develop, the testers are actually starting to put together their test suite, their test, you know, their uh, test plan. They are doing their data conditioning, you know, any of the special things they need to do, as well as setting up the test automation. So as soon as the developers are done and they say, "Hey, this is ready for you to test," the testers are ready to go and execute the tests quickly okay and one of the things that is important too is everybody's responsible for the success or failure of the user story so for instance in areas that don't have automated testing testing often takes longer than development almost always in those circumstances Mm -hmm. actually and what we'll do is if the dev is getting too far ahead of testers, we'll stop development and we'll have them go help the testers and get testing caught back up. So it's always a very synergistic relationship.
0: Yeah, it sounds like um, if everybody's responsible, then it's sort of by definition, democratic, and as you say, iterative. But if -hmm. you're a simple person like me, (laughs) A test is past or, or not past, and I'm sure there's more to this under the agile system of testing. Isn't there? Well,
1: yeah, one of the things my clients are – it's a phrase I'm known for, which is perfection is not an option. Mm-hmm. That's true for testing. No matter what we do, anything we create as human beings, because we are in our nature imperfect – means everything we create is imperfect. And so there will always be bugs. There will always be defects in everything we do. What we need to do for testing is to focus on the things that actually are material that matter. And this is some of the things I always have to work with with people is to get comfortable with imperfection. It's okay. It's going to happen. Now, what you need to do is understand there are different types of defects. Some are more severe than others. Some impact the business value that you're trying to get from that user story. And some are completely inconsequential. Mm-hmm. The ones that are inconsequential, let them go.
2: Right.
1: Don't worry about them. And what it's really kind of entertaining is usually our IT folks are the ones that are pursuing perfection. Mm-hmm. And it's our business folks who go, yeah, I don't want to pay to have that fixed because it, it doesn't change the business value. It's just going to increase my costs.
2: Right.
1: And so it's really kind of interesting on an Agile or Scrum team to watch that dynamic and to, and to hear the PO, right, on the product owner on the team say, yeah, that's not important. I accept that defect. Let's just, it, it, it's good enough. And to see, the reaction from the developers and testers at first they're usually confused, and right. then they're relieved. Then they're like, "Oh, we don't have to be perfect." No, guys, you don't, because perfection's not an option.
0: Yeah, that's such a good word, and um, maybe a simpler way of, since I'm a simple guy, is you know, don't sweat a lot of the small stuff in testing.
1: And it's important to understand because some really small defects can have a really big. Problem, um, so it's really understanding it in terms of the business value, and that's how we ma- measure the impact of a defect.
0: That's that's good advice for Agile and for a whole bunch of other stuff. But we'll uh, <laughs> we're constrained by time, and um, so we'll just continue on with the Agile discussion and methodology, or some kind of an accepted template for setting up an Agile test. Is there such a thing as a methodology
1: what we do with um writing user stories is the most commonly accepted format for writing acceptance criteria is the gherkin formula Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and it's you write it as a single sentence and a given that a certain thing happens or someone does something when they take this action then is the outcome
2: Mm
1: -hmm. so you always see given when then I usually, to make it easier for everybody, um, actually put it in a table format. Mm-hmm. So you'll have given in one column, one in the middle column, then in the other column. And it makes it a lot easier um, for writing it. For testers, they're used to thinking this way when they write test cases. hmm um, in a lot of cases for developers, too, if we have developers who have really good code coverage discipline, we talked about that a little in the DevOps um, podcast, what right. code coverage is and good code coverage discipline, they're used to writing their test cases before they start to develop, and they write their test cases in the Gherkin format as well. So, given that this condition is happening, when I do this, this is the outcome I expect to happen um and that's why we do it in user stories as well it's just a lot easier for everybody to think in those um scenarios the other thing it does is when we see a given statement repeated um a number of times and then it switches to a different given statement and our testers go this is way too much to test in one user story Mm -hmm. it's We can take our acceptance criteria and break the story down by the acceptance criteria. And it's very quick, and it's very simple, and it's very easy. And those are three words we like a lot in agile, right? I like like them everywhere. (laughs) 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 Because the essence of being agile is that it's quick, and it's simple, and it's easy. And we can react to change and manage change uh, very quickly.
0: Right. And those are, again, words to live by. But, you know, we've all been in groups where you get into a project and you find that, hey, the original idea we had really wasn't very good. And we as a group, we need to move in another direction.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Is, is a conclusion like this possible with the testing and under the Agile discipline?
1: Actually, it's called out and it's more in your face. Um, We assume in Agile, especially when we're doing a new design, that we don't know that that design will work Hmm. until we've actually developed it and tested it. Very different than Waterfall. In Waterfall, we assume that if it looks good on paper, then it's going to work in real life. Right. But in Agile, we say all the time, no design is for sure and validated until it's been tested. And that is also one of the reasons why you see in organizations who are truly agile right. is you see them getting an idea. Architecture will send an idea to a Scrum team right away. Uh-huh. Test this for me, guys. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and 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 will this work? Yeah. Let me know. And we'll have a user story that's often called a spike.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Which is just—it's just a way of distinguishing this. Is we're just—we're just testing this. We just want to see if this. This is research. Mm -hmm. We want to find out if this option will work. And that's another thing I really like about agile that really appeals to me is that we're not doing these huge investments and these big designs and spending all this money and time and effort and intellect on these complicated designs, and we have no idea that it's going to work. Yeah. In Agile, we get in there right away, and if it doesn't work, then we pivot and we try something else.
0: That's another good learning. I know that, um, like in in football or boxing and things like that, there's this expression that says everybody has a plan, and then the game starts. And it sounds like <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like it's very similar under Agile. So the role of tester, we talked about the the democratic approach, but is there a role of tester? Is that one of the members of a typical Agile team? And are there like a certain number of testers per Agile team? Is there a, a ratio of tester to team size?
1: A, a tester is definitely, a tester or testers are definitely required on this Scrum team. The, there isn't a ratio. And it's because we often have different models. Sometimes um, when all the testers, and especially in a very mature agile organization, so most of your testing is already automated, you'll have one tester per developer. hmm because that person, largely, what they're doing is updating existing automated tests and creating new, incrementally new, automated tests. But they're not doing very much, if any, manual testing. And you know, and so you need fewer test testers in that scenario. Okay. Um, for most of my clients these days, where their automated testing is 10% or less, so most of these large organizations have almost no automated testing. 10% is, by the way, is pretty much the same as saying you don't have any. Because um, it's wow. such a low number. <laughs> yeah. Um, that it's like, there's really not a lot there. And, and, and you're probably only hitting a few applications and very little integration and, you know, and very little system integration. So there's really not a lot there. What they have is a lot of manual testers. And so often what you'll find is, A scrum team will have a test lead, Mm -hmm. um, and that's the only member of the scrum team is that lead. But behind that person is a group um, often between 5 to 20 offshore testers who are doing the manual testing. The test lead does all um, the test plans and the test scenarios, then they work with the other resources to write the specific test cases and to execute the test cases. And those people, like I said, not always offshore, but in most of these large companies, those testers are offshore resources. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they don't participate in any of the scrum team ceremonies, anything. Everything goes in, through the test lead or the test coordinator.
0: Okay, so ten percent is like why bother? But it sounds like there's a a very definite um, description <laughs> need.
1: Well, ten percent is more. We have a lot of work to do Oh, because okay. <laughs> okay. we we really. In the the thing is that offshore model, by the way, is mm-hmm. really expensive. Ugh. So I, I explain those two models. The one that's most common, which is probably ninety percent of the industry is that offshore model. So you have a, a test lead on site, and then you have offshore resources. Ridiculously expensive. What companies learn, and we've already uh, seen this come out of um, John Deere, has been mm-hmm. explicit about it. American Express is now starting to talk about it. That it's actually far more cost-effective to get to um, an 80% or better automated testing and have a single, very expensive, very senior QA person on every Scrum team. They find that it's a lot less expensive, and they move a lot faster that way. And so that's actually considered kind of um, the pinnacle of being an agile team and an agile company, is if you could get to that point where you have a team supported by a single very senior, and I'll you know, admit it, expensive resource, but you're paying, what, $150,000 a year for one person, yeah. or you're paying somewhere between thirty dollars and $45,000 a year for 20 people.
0: Yeah, I mean, and in, in a lot of cases, and I'm sure this is true here too, that you, you get what you pay for a lot of days, right?
1: Absolutely, and that's why companies have found that Trying to use um, third-party vendors for your testing and get to automated testing is extremely difficult Mm -hmm. because it's not in that third-party company's best interest to automate your tests. Mm -hmm. They make their money by billable hours. And the fewer hours that they're billing to you, the less money they make. And if the more you automate testing, that's the fewer people who are billing hours, the more you automate testing even more, that's the fewer hours total it takes to do your testing. So those third-party vendors, it's not in their best interest to automate your test cases. I'm just being honest about that. Sure, sure, yeah. And so companies that use those third parties find it is a very long, slow road to automated testing.
0: Yeah. Well, nobody likes slow, but I'm sure <laughs> that uh, well,
1: especially when slow always means expensive.
0: Amen. That's in these so scenarios.
1: scenarios,
0: yeah, it's it's very creepy and goes along very slowly, but it is expensive. Those are not good selling points.
1: No, it's not. <laughs> but it's this outsourced model is you know been in play in corporations for a long time. I think it's kind of entertaining that Peter Drucker has started telling us in the 1960s. That it's a very expensive model, Mm -hmm. but it continues to be very popular because they, all they do is they go, Oh, this person offshore is $19 an hour, but if I have someone in Texas do it, I have to pay them $63 an hour. Well, what they don't see is the guy in Texas is going to automate your tests, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? (laughs) And the guy in, you know, offshore is not. The guy in Texas, for instance, knows what a credit card is, knows what a mortgage is, knows how to use a cell phone, actually uses those apps, has a personal customer experience that they can rely on. Most of the time, the people offshore have no personal experience with your product. And so it's always going to take them longer as well.
0: So what kind of special skills are needed to to become or to be an Agile tester?
1: Of course, we have the same characteristics, right, of any member of a scrum team or an Agile organization, which is someone who understands and is willing to operate in an iterative fashion, Mm -hmm. um, very collaborative. But we also need testers who don't have a testing specialty. Um, In Waterfall, testers specialized in I specialize in non-functional testing and someone is I specialize in UAT and then you have another person who I specialize in you know system integration testing that can exist in an agile world you have to have all your testers can do any of that testing Mm
2: -hmm.
1: I can't stress this enough you have to have automation Um, one of the things that I've been Telling companies for a long time is to meet the minimum standards of being able to call yourself an agile company you have to have automated testing if -hmm. you do not have automated testing you're not an agile company that's and that goes for your people they have to be able to write. your testers have to be able to write update and execute automated tests right and the last one well it's actually kind of more of the first one, but they need to think in everything they do incrementally and systemically. So I gave you that example in the first question about how we test user stories and we line the user stories up to do an end-to-end, to Mm -hmm. A to B to C. A good tester automatically sees that and thinks that way. And so they will help the team make sure that the user stories are done in the right order so that the tester can do a full end-to-end test by
0: the end. So the idea though of this kind of rigorous testing and the quality of agility seem like opposites. Um, I guess uh, and I kind of go back to what the question was earlier about, you know, the pass or fail. How, how do we resolve the qualities of these levels of extremely rigorous testing and at the same time remain agile?
1: Well, like I said, we're doing all the same. We're doing the what is the same, right? It's the how is different between traditional project management and agile. And so we're still doing rigorous testing. That's not at all incompatibility with the high quality of Agile. But we're doing it incrementally. And we actually create, catch more defects. We've proven this. This is the science part of Agile. I always warn you guys when I'm going into the science. This is the science. is we've proven that we um, catch more defects with Agile testing and we catch them sooner in the process. So we'll find more defects in automated unit and uh, component testing,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and then we'll find more defects in integration testing, and we'll find more defects, so on and so forth, before we hit user acceptance testing. Mm-hmm. And as someone who spent a very long time mm-hmm. doing huge... Um, traditional waterfall projects, and I was very successful at it.
2: Yeah.
1: But I'll be really honest with you mm-hmm. when every traditional waterfall project manager and program manager knows, in that scenario, most of the defects and the worst defects are found in user acceptance testing, which is one mm-hmm. of the worst places to find them. When you go to Agile, You actually find most of them much sooner in testing, and your UAT is nearly
0: clean. Hmm. And And, that makes a lot of sense. That's a
1: big difference. And that's why we brag in the agile community (laughs) that what we produce is of higher quality, because we have the science behind us that, that shows that.
0: And like we say here in Texas, that if you can do it, it's not really bragging. So...
1: Good. <laughs> I like that.
0: Yeah. So, um, at what point then, Rin, is a project ready for testing? Who decides that, and what are the parameters?
1: As soon as a team says, a Scrum team says, that a user story is ready. So, remember, we talked about the definition of ready. Right. It means that the team's like, we're going to work on this now. That means you're ready for testing. Because as soon as the team pulls down that user story, and like I said, the developer starts the design, the tester is right there and they've already, they're doing their work. They're working side by side with the developers to find out what the design is so that the testers know what the technical aspects need to be tested.
2: Okay.
1: And they're putting together their test plans and their test cases. They already know from the acceptance criteria what the UAT test cases are going to be,
2: mm-hmm. but
1: they sit there with the developer, and testing starts almost immediately with development. That's one of the things I like,
0: right. is
1: they, if you do this right, remember I said you got to make sure you don't let dev get ahead of tests? Right. If we do this right, they stay lockstep with each other, mm-hmm. and they have a nice rhythm with each other. The other reason why we keep them together is another one of the things I'm known for is we don't put new code on top of untested code. Okay. Cause we have to assume that if it's untested, that means it's not good. Cause we haven't, it hasn't passed. We haven't said we accept these user stories. This is ready to go. And so when we add new code on top of untested code, then we're adding more risk. We're adding more opportunities for defects.
0: So putting something new on top of something untested is likely potentially just compounding folly, making a bad situation worse. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Okay. Absolutely. So you,
0: yeah. You, you told us, uh, you hinted at these terms earlier, automated testing. Tell us about automating testing and, and what kinds of things are there that can be automated?
1: Almost, pretty much all testing can be automated. Um, even, and I didn't used to believe this, but my last client, I, I worked with a really phenomenal technical art, um, agile, uh, consultant. Mm-hmm. And he showed me that even unit testing can be automated.
2: Huh.
1: And I, and that was really excited to me, to me. I've worked with what we call, um, test driven development, which is you write the test first. The developer mm-hmm. writes the test first, and then you do the development, and then you test it. But he actually showed I me mean, how to automate it, and I thought, that is that is really awesome. Hmm. <laughs> and the development process was so much faster. Uh, but I have for years, I mean, even I know how to write automated um, UAT, I mean, mm-hmm. user acceptance testing. It, there are so many tools out there. They're low cost. Most organizations, and this is true, Mm -hmm. usually have two or three different applications that support or do automated testing. So, if like most places have, you know, Quality Center or some version of Quality Center, they'll have Rally version one, Jira. All of those support automated testing. Mm -hmm. Um, Jenkins is probably one of the most. uh, Jenkins, uh, is probably one of the most common, um, uh, integration and dev tool suites right now, and that supports automated testing. It is so, even Excel, by the way. Um, mm-hmm. one of the things I showed someone the other day is how you can use Excel and, and, uh, to write automated test cases. <laughs> they didn't believe right. me, and I was like, alright, fine, I'm gonna show you. Um it they they're really the the tools are so prolific and most of them are ridiculously easy to use.
0: I'm liking that. Ridiculously easy and it sounds like Ren there's lots of advantages to doing this um compared to traditional methods of testing, right?
1: Absolutely. Um, it, in the, the cost benefits are enormous and the quality is so much stronger. The more you automate, the, the higher your quality across right. the board.
0: So what happens on the team, on the Agile team after testing? Do they just get ready for more tests?
1: Well, once the testing is complete, then the user story is accepted and it's considered complete. So you go on to the next one. In most Scrum teams, to be honest, um, are going to be working on between two and four user stories at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there really isn't, for them, there isn't a stop. You know, a developer picks, you know, they grab a user story, the developer starts the design, the tester starts writing the test cases to it, the developer is um, writing the code and doing their own testing, their unit and component testing, sometimes their integration testing, so and... A lot of times testing is working on the next user story. Okay. And then when this the user stories go to test, then Dev picks the next user story. So everybody is always working, and they should be working on a nice, sustainable pace. We don't do evenings and weekends in Agile. We really do everything in our power to make sure that's not happening. Mm
0: -hmm. If that
1: does happen in an organization, then we know there's something fundamentally broken in our agile practices. Uh-huh. And, that, and it's the same thing, like I said earlier, if dev gets ahead of testing and we have to stop dev, and de- the dev people go in and help testing, then we know there's something broken in our practices, and we need to look at our retrospective and say, what do we need to do differently for the next sprint so we don't have to do this again? And if things are allowed to deteriorate to the point that an organization has to have a testing sprint, Then the leadership needs to get involved in that retrospective and say, okay, what are we going to do differently so we make sure we don't do this again? Because every time you stop and just focus on on testing, the company as a whole is losing money. Mm -hmm. You've just, the scrum team or scrum teams have introduced an incredible amount of risk because of, So think of that. That means you've got lots of new code on top of lots of untested code Mm -hmm. when you get to a testing sprint. So that's like risk, risk, risk. I mean, it's exponential at that point, right? And then you're taking two or three weeks, and all you're doing is testing, which means you're not creating during that time frame any new business value.
0: Yeah, compounded risk of delayed testing.
1: So you've got your cost is your expenses are going in the wrong direction, they're going up, not down, your risks are going in the wrong direction, they're going up really fast, <laughs> not mm-hmm. down, and your business value is going in the wrong direction because it's going down, not up. Mm-hmm. So when you hit a when an organization hits a testing sprint, that really should be to the executive layers layer and all stop all right, okay. you finish what you're doing, finish this testing sprint. As soon as you're done, we're going to stop and have a retrospective and figure out what we're going to do differently in the next sprint so that we don't replicate this problem.
0: So what kind of influence does the tester have on the rest of the team? Is a good tester or a bad tester influential, or, or how can the tester influence the team for the good is maybe a better way to ask that.
1: A tester is definitely an influential. They should be an equal member of the scrum team. Um, a user story, I mean, most of the time when I ask your scrum team, is this story ready? I start with the testers um, because mm-hmm. if they don't believe they can get all the testing done in one sprint or, you know, whatever the 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 goal is for the team
2: mm-hmm. then
1: the team needs to stop and listen to that. Um that is one of the the difficult points for people going from waterfall to agile is in waterfall, um we always say you know what rolls downhill
2: and in yes. waterfall
1: <laughs> who's at the bottom of the hill, testing.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: They're dead last right before you go to production, right? right. So who has the most crap on them? <laughs> it's the testers. So the testers are used to getting the crap beat out of them, and they don't have a voice in the process in Waterfall.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: it's not easy for them to, one, break that Waterfall concept and always want to do all their testing together at once.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Going to incremental testing is a huge mind shift for Uh testers. The other thing is they're so used to getting beat up and not having a voice Uh that it often takes a scrum coach one-on-one work with that person or a really good scrum master one-on-one with that person or people to get them to speak up in the room and to be an equal member of the scrum team. It, it, it isn't, I think um, a lot of ways of all the roles when we transition from waterfall to agile, a lot of ways I think the testing is the hardest
0: transition. Mm-hmm. So finally, Ren, with the time we have left, is it okay to fail? Of course. Okay, good. You're
1: going to fail. <laughs> I always tell my clients it's not a if, it's a when. It's when you fail. And I ask them, what are you going to do, especially executives, what are you going to do when the team fails? How are you going to react? Right. Because the traditional waterfall reaction is to escalate and everybody freaks out.
0: Yes. Right? You read my mind.
1: In Agile, when you fail, you go, oh, crap. Hmm. Mm-hmm. What can we learn from that? Because every failure is a learning opportunity. Yes. And I always remind people that human beings are hard-coded by, you know, thousands and thousands of years of evolution. We are hard-coded to learn more from our failures than our successes. Yes. I do not remember a single question on the SAT exam, and I kicked ass on it. (laughs) I... Missed one question on, as a high school student, on the AP biology exam. And yeah. I still remember that question, and I still remember the correct answer to it, and that was a long time ago, and I won't share with you guys how long ago, but it's a long time ago. And, <laughs> man. And, because that's just how human beings are hard-coded. Hmm. And so the advantage to agile and the reason why we do a retrospective at the end of every sprint is because we know we screwed up something. Perfection's not an option. So we know we screwed up. So what are we going to learn from those mistakes?
2: And it's the same thing.
1: If we have a user story and say we missed somehow, and it's very rare, but it can happen, we missed the whole team missed an incredibly important acceptance criteria,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so it went all the way to production, and we somehow missed this.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Then you learn from that, and you're in an agile environment, so you can fix it really quickly.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm really happy to hear this because it sounds like not only um, learning from your errors is part of the methodology, but it kind of fits this overall human evolutionary model that it's it's natural and relatable and kind of part of, as you said, our, our uh, hard coding.
1: <laughs> I forgot to put my science disclaimer when I was flipping yeah. in that. But a lot of the things that we talk about as far as agile culture and how we treat people and how people relate to each other in an agile environment comes from science.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It comes from what we know scientifically helps people perform better. We know that people perform better in collaborative environments.
2: Yes, yes. When a
1: group of people are competing against an external force, we know that people do not perform better and actually perform significantly worse where they're in individualistic competitive environments where you're competing against the person sitting next to you. So these are the kind of things that we, the science that we bring to agile, and that we bring to something like testing. We deliberately make sure that Dev and Test are not pitted against each other; they're not competing; they're collaborative. Right.
0: So, Ren, before we run out of time this week, was there was there anything else that you wanted to add before we have to go?
1: Yeah, I would. I'd like to just clarify what I was saying about um, using third parties for your testing and how automation isn't in their best interest. I was referring specifically to those traditional contracts. Some organizations now are developing contracts with their third-party offshore testers where there are incentives to automate. That's a totally different situation, right? Mm -hmm. Right. I was referring very specifically to those, those traditional offshore third-party contracts where it's just a billable hour, <laughs> you know, right. and you're just getting billed by the hour no matter what they're doing. Um, one of the things I have been seeing with my clients is they have changed those contracts and they've put in um, incentives and requirements for automated testing. So I'm not saying get rid of your third parties. I'm just saying we need to have a different relationship with those third-party vendors and, and partners so that it benefits the organization and we can do automated testing.
0: Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad that you did clarify that, Rin. And just in the few moments before we go, Rin has started a newsletter. It goes out at least once a week, sometimes more. The best way to receive it and learn about All of the updates to her recently upgraded website is to subscribe by going to www.renmelberg.com. And if you're listening on iTunes or SoundCloud and you want to know more about Ren, if you want to be in touch with her directly, that's the best place to do it at renmelberg.com. That's all for this week. Be sure and come back next week and tell your friends about the Guardian podcast with Ren Melberg.